Thank you, Brian. Good morning, everyone. I know it's been said a couple of different times, but we really hope you're having a, a good day. Uh, thanks for coming, uh, coming here. We, we firmly believe that one of the ways that God is going to sustain you in your, in your faith, one of the best inheritances that we have in, in Christ, in addition, of course, to the freedom from guilt and shame, forgiveness of sins, is one another. These, these brothers and sisters have been given to you, so I'm grateful that you took time to be here today. Uh, thanks for gathering as the church. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for it. If you have a Bible, you could take it out and turn to Revelation chapter 4. I'll tell you why we're going there in just, uh, in just a moment. I want to take just a, a second and say, say thanks to Jeff, uh, Jeff for leading worship with, for us this morning. I'm um, really grateful for him and for all the, the gifted people who, who step in and help lead us each week. I know that uh, Tim, is, uh, Tim Anderson is normally there and uh, grateful for him and Sarah to get uh, a bit of a, a break this weekend and uh, really thankful uh, for that. Let me walk you, I'll walk you through a couple of things because we need to kind of reorient. I don't know if you knew this, but it is officially summer. And uh, some of you are like, yeah, it feels like summer in here, guy. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I want you to know for at least three weeks, we've been in conversations with Open Bible, who owns this property, and uh, they are in a game of when the part comes, we're going to fix the air conditioning thing or something like that. And so we are, we're definitely trying to get it worked out. Um, if, if this is any consolation to you, I just want you to know that where I'm standing is the coolest spot in the room. So I'm fine. I just wanted you to know. Uh, I really do appreciate your patience with that. Uh, but you probably have noticed that it's summer. And that seems like an odd thing because it's not even June yet. Uh, it actually snowed two weeks ago in North Dakota. Uh, we're still waiting for spring uh, with a lot of my relatives back home. But apparently here in the South, by the time it's end of May, everyone is just done with school, done with that whole spring thing, and summer is already here. What that means, at least in part, is that we're transitioning from walking through the book of Acts. We've spent 10 months or so in a series in Acts, and now we are going to be looking at something very significant in the life of our church over the summer. We've called it Truth Matters. Matters because, of course, it's a significant thing. What we believe and say about the world and who we are is important, but we're also mentioning Truth Matters because this is, uh, this is something to do with the way we organize ourselves as a church. Over the next few months, we are suggesting and proposing to the church that we adopt a, a statement of faith from the Gospel Coalition. And we realize that the statement of faith is not a minor thing for a church. We want it to be as, as close as possible to being what we, what we operate out of, what we want to teach. We want it to be generous, but robust. We want it to be significant because we don't just gather as a social club. There's a lot of benefits to being a part of a church. Hopefully you find relationships and care and community here. But ultimately, what we believe about the world and life, and what we believe specifically about Jesus and who he is for us and through us and in us is what unites us. Our statement of faith matters. And so we're going to take 13 weeks over the summer. There are 13 articles in this statement of faith, and we're going to take a week and look at one of them each of those weeks. There'll be a vote later on at the end of the summer, and uh, you'll, you'll vote whether or not we want to adopt this, this statement or not. I want to mention that what we're calling you to is affirmation of the statement. That does not mean that you have to wholeheartedly subscribe to every jot and tittle of the, of the document. That's a funny phrase. It's a 
Maybe not helpful. What I mean by is everything in there. You might read this document. You might hear me even in the next moment. I'm going to read Article 1. I might go through it and you might say to yourself, well, I wouldn't use that word, or that's not how I've always thought of it, or I would phrase it differently. Some of you are so precise, you think to yourself, I think point B under Article 3 should really be a subcategory of Article 7, and I think, you know what I mean? You're just those people. You think like that. You have matching socks on today. That's who, that's who you are, right? And so some of you, that's how you think, it's how you feel. And I just want to let you know that we're not asking for you to write a, a dissertation or a doctrinal statement and say, I'm staking my life on every word of the statement. But we do want you to say that I can joyfully and wholeheartedly live life in community under a church that basically teaches from this framework and that you're, you're committing to say, You're committing to saying, I see how this flows from Scripture. I might not have worded it that way. I don't know all the implications, but I'm not going to be divisive over what is found in there. I think that's basically what the statement is. And I know that a lot of you had questions. So, here's the the plan. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read four verses, and and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking... I can't believe we're jumping into a sermon series on something so complicated, complex, and potentially confusing as the book of Revelation. And to that I would say, of course we're not. We're going to teach on the Trinity today instead. That's what we're going to do. So we are trying to get at the bigness of the doctrinal statement, this article, and I feel like this particular passage in Revelation 4 gets at as close as we can, all of what Article 1 says, and then we are just going to hone in on the first section of it because I think it could be the most confusing. So if everyone's with me, I want to point to verse 8 of Revelation 4. This is the vision at the end of all things, part of it that John sees, and what we see clearly is that God is not a minor character in history. He is the substance, the source, the author, the beginning, the middle, the end of all things. It's why in a moment we're going to start our statement of faith with who is God? That's not a small question. In order to please God, you must know that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's what Hebrews tells us. This is part of the picture that John gives us, verse 8 of Revelation chapter 4. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Let me take a moment and pray. In the beginning, God, you were And all through the history of the people, you worked, you met them, you sustained them and helped them. And God, we thank you for this picture. Thank you for this picture that at the end of all things, there you are in center 
in the center place, in the best place, in the exalted place. And God, I ask that over the next few moments you'd help us. We are finite. We are not able to comprehend all that you are. And so we pray for help. God, help me to be clear, to bring clarity where I can. God, I ask that you would be kind to us. Help us to understand you and your nature. I pray that in the next few moments, we would not fall into the trap of believing that it's a minor thing to think of you. What we think about, when we think about you, God, are the most glorious thoughts that we could think. So help us. But some of this is confusing. And yet we want to wrestle with who you've disclosed yourself to be. We want to meet you truly. So God, help us. We pray for grace in the next few moments. Keep us alert. Help us to love you with our minds. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin reading. This is the first article of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. So we're proposing that we adopt. And I want you to see that the verses that I just read from Revelation chapter 4, I think is one of the closest sections of Scripture that holds all of what is in this statement. But you're going to see, if I asked you, where does this statement come from? The answer, honestly, would have to be, well, start on the first page of Genesis and then go all the way to the end. That's where the statement comes from. It's a 66-book article. But I want you to see that the idea of God being holy, 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 this trifold holiness is not a minor thing. It points to the Trinity. The fact that he is almighty and powerful, that he was before, that he is and he will be forever and ever. He's eternal. The fact that he's worthy of worship and glory and honor. The fact that he created all things and that nothing happens, nothing exists, and nothing comes into existence, it says, apart from his will. Those are the kinds of things that we find in this article. Here's what it says. It's titled, The Triune God. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect, both in his love and in his holiness, He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration, immortal and eternal. He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning. He sustains and sovereignly rules over all things and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace." Some of the themes in this particular article, this statement, can be found all throughout Scripture. You see creation there. You see we believe in one God. We're going to get to that. The fact that he's worthy to receive praise, that everything in existence, the the bile ducts in your body are there for the glory of God. That's the testimony of Scripture. The fact that he's bringing about an eternally good purpose to the praise of his glory. That's the beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. This wording is everywhere. And so for this morning, we had to ask ourselves the question, what is potentially the most difficult part of this article? Well, it's pretty glaringly obvious, right? We believe in and worship a God who is one and yet three. A God who is three and yet one. Now, some people say, well, you are talking out of both sides of your mouth. This is an absolute contradiction The law of contradiction states that something cannot be A and B at the same time. 
So God is either one or he is either three. What we'd say to that is that God is one in a certain way. He is one in A, but he is three in B, in some kind of different way. There is a oneness of God in one particular way and a threeness in God in a different particular way. And so we're going to focus in on the first part of the statement. We believe in one God eternally existing in three equally divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. How is this possible? Let me say a disclaimer right from the start. I don't know. Okay? How is this possible? I don't know. And I want you to feel okay. There will be something in all of us at the end of this that will look, and our head will sort of go to the side, and we'll say, okay, I still just don't fully know. I think that's by design. God has not revealed himself to us in a way that we can know him exhaustively, but he does desire to be known truly. We can apprehend him. And the things that he's told us about himself, we want to wrestle with it. It's a little bit, I think, like like Augustine found out. So Augustine is an amazing scholar. Fifth century, wrote some of the most, um, some most influential works. Theology that honestly not only shaped the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, but then a thousand years later became the spark of the Reformation. He was one of the guys, the call of the Reformation from these guys who sort of just like rang the bell and said, hey, things need to change. They recovered the gospel, went all the way back to this guy. He was walking one day on a beach. It's a very Florida thing of him to do. He's walking on a beach, and he came across a small boy who had dug a hole in the side of the beach. He watched for a little while as this boy was running back and forth with a makeshift bucket sort of thing that he had, and he kept picking up water from the, from the ocean, and he would go, and he was, trying, he was trying to get it down the hole. So he watched this boy for a while, doing this thing over and over again, and as he walked by, he stopped and he said, can I ask you what you're, what you're doing? What are you building here? It looks great. You got a hole? What are you, what are you up to? And the boy said, oh, well, you see, sir, I'm trying to get the ocean into this hole. I want to put the water from the ocean into this hole in the beach. And he smirked and thought, what a beautifully childish thing to think, right? Good luck with that. You ever tried to do this before? Every single time I go to the beach, I make sandcastles, we make a moat, we try to make a little river. My kids pour the water at one end of the river, it's gone by the time it gets to the end. Of course, it's an impossible task. And so Augustine walked away thinking to himself like, oh, I'm so smug. Oh, the child just does not know. It's impossible to get the ocean into this hole. And then later, he began to not feel so smug and realized that much of his entire world, his entire existence in theological writing could be, he could be charged with being much like the little boy. That in many of the things that we're trying to grapple with, what we're trying to say is, hey, let's get all of God into this little hole in my head. I'm going to put all of you, God, into here, and it's like putting the ocean into a hole in the sand. It's an impossibility to get all of it. It just cannot be done. And I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that up front. In fact, it's one of the reasons that God is worthy of worship. He is not like us. He's wholly other. But that does not mean that it is not a worthwhile activity to run back to the water every once in a while and pick up a bucket and dump it down the hole. So, is it possible to get all of the ocean down in the hole? Yes, but let us not conclude, therefore, well, then don't even try. Don't even go to the ocean. The fact is that God has revealed himself truly. And what I'm inviting you to today is here's the thing. 
we've got a little bit of a hole in the sand. And I want to run and take true and real buckets of who God is and attempt to understand them. We're going to dump them down the hole. That's, that's what we're up to. And I know that it might be confusing and I want you to know that's okay. The best and the brightest for hundreds of years have come up with a construction that's helpful but is not exhaustive. It's not perfect. You might ask the question, why do we believe in the Trinity? Because it's confusing. In fact, if you've had evangelistic conversations with anyone, you know that this idea is a huge stumbling block. If you try to tell someone who is a follower, follower of Islam about Jesus and what he is and who he is, they will immediately say to you, you are practicing pantheism. The Lord is one Jesus cannot be the Son of God because that would make two gods and outright they reject. It's a huge stumbling block. You have entire offshoots of religion and faith. Jehovah's Witnesses, for instances. For instances. <laughs> Witnesses, for instances. They cannot accept Jesus as divine because to them it seems like this is, this is two gods at a minimum, maybe tritheism, and so to get a, good, a proper construction of the Trinity is an interesting task. It certainly does not simplify the faith for us. And you may have heard even this particular phrase. You could probably end it for me, right? Uh, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but the Trinity is not even, it's not even in the Bible, right? You, you said that as though, as though God determined to keep our linguistic efforts only to those words that are actually present in the Bible. Yes, the word is not in the Bible, but before we believe anything, we need to ask ourselves, the word might not be there, but is, is the concept there? And can we function with our understanding of God without this idea of the Trinity? The answer is going to be no. And so the most basic, this is where we're going to start, the most basic and the best reason to believe anything, the most basic and the best reason to believe in a triune God is the fact that the Bible displays and discloses God as Trinity. The Bible shows it. This is a quote from John Frame, who is probably my favorite theologian. He just released a systematic theology. It's very accessible. He's endlessly devoted to Scripture. This is what he has to say about the fact that Scripture shows us a, a vision of God that must be triune. He says this, that fact is this, Scripture testifies from beginning to end that God is one. But it also presents three persons who are God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their deity pervades Scripture and assures us that our salvation is from beginning to end a divine salvation, the work of God himself. Nor can it be debated whether the biblical God is one. Indeed, his oneness is also important to our salvation. He is God alone. There is none beside him. So none can prevent him from bringing eternal salvation to his people. And so God is one, but somehow also three. This fact is difficult to understand, but it is quite unavoidable in Scripture and central to the biblical gospel. It is unavoidable in Scripture and central to the biblical gospel. Now, I want you to know, apart from being clear and stating the case and the problem, one of the things that I love about John Frame is the humility that he shows. There's a specific sentence for sure in here. So God is one, but somehow also three. And this is very encouraging, encouraging to me. This man is unbelievably brilliant. This guy, John Frame, he, he will speak for hours on end about the most minute, unbelievable philosophical distinctions from 600 years ago. 
And not only their distinctions, but then what 17 people thought about each of the distinctions and what they wrote. One time in class, I went up to talk to him at a break. And I said to him, hey, I have a question for you, something I've been wrestling with. It's not on topic, but can I ask you? Yeah, yeah, sure, go for it. So I asked him about denominations and division and how does this whole thing work? He answered me for about 45 seconds. He began answering me. And then he stopped and he said, oh, I wrote a book about that. Why don't you just go online and you can find it. It's, this is the kind of man who writes books and forgets he wrote that book. That's who, that's who this guy is. He's, he's designed by God to think big thoughts and to write them in clear ways. That's who this guy is. It's somehow extremely comforting to me that when he approaches the Trinity, he writes a phrase like this. So God is one, but somehow yet also three. And I love that he says this fact is difficult to understand. I want you to know if it's difficult to understand for you, you're in good company. But that does not lessen our need. It does not lessen our need, nor should it lessen our joy in attempting to understand what God has revealed of himself. We cannot neglect something if God has revealed it to us. It is neither wise nor safe for us to encounter something from Scripture and to say, you know what, that's a little bit difficult. I think I'm just going to not think about it. If you avoid every single doctrine or every single thought that seems difficult to you, it is not Scripture you believe, it is not God you believe, but it's some version of reality that you've invented for yourself. We know this is difficult. We won't get totally to the end of it. But it is a worthwhile pursuit because it's who God disclosed himself to be. So the first thing I want to do is look at the most simple aspect of it and the easiest to grasp, oneness. This is clear, one. So how is God one? I think everybody can understand that concept. And from the beginning, we've seen that Israel had a commitment to God being one. You probably remember it from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In a section that became known as the Shema, every, children were raised on this. This was what they were, were given as a fact of life concerning God. Very, very simply, verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. And this was a phrase that would have been the dominant force to understand who God is. It was in a reaction against... This idea, monotheism, one God, was in reaction against the dominant culture of the day, the dominant religions of the day that would have been very pantheistic. There was a God for everything, a God for rain, and a God for a fertile harvest, and a God of thunder, and a God of lightning, and of the sea. And more than that, there were different gods for different regions of the earth. And so if you were a Canaanite, you would worship Baal. And if you were a different part of the world, you had a different conception of who God was. So this statement that God is one, there is no one like him, there is no other, he is solo, was a defining factor for Israel. And it's not just Moses who said this. Later on, all the way through, Isaiah, the prophet, spoke this in Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. This is self-disclosure from God. He says in verse 5 of Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Moses says in Deuteronomy, there is 
one God. Isaiah says there's, there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. This is God's disclosure about himself. There's none besides him. It's not just that God is one in the fact numerically, but he is also one. We need to give him a place of oneness in the sense that he is perfectly and utterly unique. He's in a category all by himself. This is going to land really well in Florida, a hockey analogy. It's like there's every other hockey player ever, and then there's Wayne Gretzky. You know what he's called? The Great One. That's what he's called. He's called the Great One. There are categories for everyone else, and then there's Wayne Gretzky. Do you know that if Wayne Gretzky had never scored a single goal in his entire NHL career, he would still have more points than any other NHL player that had ever played the game? More than the second and third player combined. He's the great one, right? So it's like in, in magnitude, he's in a separate category. And the Bible speaks of God in this way all the time. Not only is he numerically one, but there's no one else like him. There's goodness and then there's God. There's beauty and then there's God. There is wisdom and then there is God. There's fast food and then there is Chick-fil-A. <laughs> sorry, I got, sorry I, got, I got carried away for a moment. But you get the point. He is categorically other and alone in that category. More than that, his works, the uniqueness of his power is alone. He does not share sovereignty and rule with someone else. He does not attempt to do things and then say, hey, I'll get back to you. I really wanted to save you. It's just that there's this other God in Baal. That's his territory. We got to work it out. He's alone in power. His otherness, he is one. That's what the testimony of the Bible we believe it because Moses taught it clearly, because Isaiah taught it clearly. And more than that, Jesus picked up this theme and said it was one of the most important things for us to know. This is Mark chapter 12. You remember that the Pharisees came to Jesus and put him to the test? That's a common theme. Much of the New Testament could be described in that phrase, people putting Jesus to the test. I think that issue itself points to Jesus being divine, Jesus said, you do not put the Lord your God to the test. The writers of the Gospels are showing us something. Jesus is constantly being put to the test. This is how he answered to this question. What is the greatest commandment? Not a bad question. What is the greatest commandment? Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus picks up this theme and says, if you want to know what the most important thing is to consider when you're approaching God, is to remember that he is one. He is alone. He is no, there is no one who is his equal. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. We can go all the way back to Sunday school. You want to go there? We'll go there, right? Like... All the way back, the first two, first two of the Ten Commandments, set apart God as alone, other, unique. He is one in a category of himself. One. He does not share. And Jesus says you ought to love him with all your heart, all your soul. And maybe on a morning like this, we need to love him with all of our minds. This is a mind kind of bending experience, but it's who God has revealed himself to be. 
And then the Apostle Paul picks up the same theme from Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's having some, some food issues, some food arguments with friends. He, they're, they're in the church in Corinthians talking about whether or not they should eat food offered to idols. They weren't sure if it was grass-fed, if it was organic. Uh, someone thought they saw, saw I was going to come up with a good Bible name, Jedediah, or something, spraying some herbicides on their food that came in. They were just having a throwdown. It was a buffet argument. And so he's writing to them in Corinthians, and he's saying to them, here's how to solve this. And one of the things he points back to is the oneness of God to point out the fact that idols do not have substance or exist. He says in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. The oneness of God is attested to all throughout Scripture. So I said earlier that God is one in a certain way, and he is three in a different way. So I wanted to summarize, how is God one? The way that people have described this, and the way we say things, the precision of our language is important, right? You guys have all seen these terrible memes. The precision of grammar and language is important. Commas matter. You've seen the commas save lives. Let's eat grandma. Let's eat comma grandma. You've seen that before? Right, so it matters. And precision in this matters a little bit sort of like that. A little bit like that. God is one in his essence, in his being, in his being, in his nature. In other words, it's not as though God the Father is good and Jesus is less good or not as good. It's not as though the Holy Spirit is divine because he's kind of weird and floaty and spiritual, but Jesus had a body so he's less divine. In his being, he is one. His essence, the essence of who he is, God is one. And this matters for us. It matters when it comes to idolatry. It matters in the fact that we are not, we're not convoluted. We're not confused. We're not divided in our attention when we're worshiping God. When we're thanking Jesus for what he's done. When we're asking the Holy Spirit to fall. When we're thanking the Father for his fatherly care of us as sons and daughters. We're not divided. Again, John Frame says this, the unity of God profoundly affects the religious life of the believer. We are to worship him alone and serve him alone, trust him alone, seek honor from him alone. God's unity, therefore, is not merely a numerical fact, but a central concern of piety. Before God's presence, we confess that he alone is God. God is one. Now, imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment that it's 2,050 years ago. And you're hanging out. It's 50 BC. And I came to you and I said, Hey, what do you know about God? You're a Jewish person and you've grown up and you say to yourself, Well, I have the, I have the scriptures. Moses recorded them. We have the law and the prophets and the Psalms. The Lord our God is one. And then in your lifetime, in your lifetime, something takes place that you maybe have heard of now, Christmas. You've heard of Christmas? God becomes flesh and dwells among us. Only when you begin to think about who is God and how can we worship, do you begin to recognize the unbelievable disclosure of God that that must have been for people how they had to wrestle with. If you spent your entire life knowing the Lord your God is one and I cannot commit adultery 
with another god. It's the way the Bible describes worship of other gods. He calls it adultery. And then on the scene comes one who says, before Abraham was, I am. Who receives worship like a god. Who forgives sin as only God can forgive sin. Who has power over wind and waves and demons and spirits. Who was crucified, dead and buried, and then is now alive. This disclosure of who God is in Jesus Christ, in the Son, would have shattered minds. And it brings in the central tension of the early church for the first hundred years of church history. How can God be one, and yet the Father remain in heaven, and the Son take on flesh? This conundrum, this problem, is where we first begin to see very clearly that even though God in one way is one, that he is also three. He is three persons. There are three, he's a three personality within his unity. Now, I want to say something right up front before we look at a couple Bible verses that show us this. What happens in the New Testament, even though the word Trinity is not used, you read accounts of what's happening and you don't have anything else to do but conclude the Trinity must exist or none of this works. It's a key that unlocks an understanding of almost all of the doors that we walk through in Scripture. And there's going to be a temptation. Are you ready for this? Here's the temptation. The temptation is, well, the Old Testament must have had it wrong, and the New Testament has it right. And we want to reject that. I think B.B. Warfield, who's a smart, dead guy, wrote some very, very interesting and I think accessible things on this. This is how he wrote to think about the Old Testament in relationship to this. He says the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished, but dimly lighted. I'm going to pause there for a moment. He's saying it's like a room, richly furnished. There are things everywhere. You just can't see them because the light is dark. It's like me stepping on Legos in my boy's room. I don't think they magically appeared when I had to go check on them in the night. They were there. I just couldn't see them until my foot found them. Like that. It says, the introduction of light brings into it, the room, nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer, into, into clearer view much of what it is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament. In other words, Trinity is not openly revealed, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there, it almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it. So it's not a correction, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. Only perfected, extended, and enlarged. If you are still with me, air high five. Like, great job. Like, these are big thoughts. But it's important, lest we start to look at the Old Testament as like, you know what, they had it really wrong. God had a PR problem. He was just an angry, monotheistic God. I'm so glad we have the New Testament that corrected all of that. You might ask the question, were Jesus and the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament? Yes. From the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God, what was hovering over the face of the deep? The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. What was sent that rested on Saul as a king and then later was removed so that his soul was vexed? The spirit. 
The scriptures all the way through, even at the end of Acts 28, we see in the, pro- in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 6, what does Paul say about it? The Holy Spirit moved Isaiah to write. Scripture came by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There are even instances all throughout the Old Testament where there is a specific angel of the Lord. That's this idea. A sort of bodily angel that comes, except this angel is very, very unique and different in the Old Testament. This angel receives worship from people. What does every other angel normally do? Like, oh no, you shouldn't. No, really. Enough. Stand up. I'm a created being just like you. That's what angels say. But there's this curious angel of the Lord character in the Old Testament. You can look it up. This is one of those crazy things. If I say, you know, Jesus was in the Old Testament, people are like, heretic. Burn him now. You can go look it up. You can go look it up. This character is unique. He receives worship. Many people see that this is some sort of like pre-incarnate Christ. Even if he wasn't a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, we know that Colossians tells us this. By the word of God that was with God in the beginning. Does that ring a bell? John chapter 1. This word that became flesh was there from the beginning. By him and in him and through him are all things. For in him were created all things. Jesus was there from the beginning as the vehicle of creation. But it's hinted at, right? Don't you just wish at a certain point Genesis chapter 4 would like call a time out? And Moses would say, just so you know, God is one, but he's three. It's crazy. You'll see it in a couple thousand years. You know what I mean? Like, I will, you wish it would call time out. And so Warfield says, here's what happens. The Old Testament hints. There's whispers. And then when the fullness of time came, that's how Galatians records it. When the fullness of time came, in order to accomplish redemption, God sends the Son who became flesh. And we see a whole new picture. I want to show you one of these pictures where nothing almost happens in the New Testament. Anything of significance can happen without us wrestling with the three persons of God. This is Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes down. He meets John the Baptist, who's been a crazy man for a while, crying out for people to be repented, be, uh, repent and be baptized. And in verse 16, it says this, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Simple questions present to us massive complications from this particular one little episode in Jesus' life right at the beginning of the Gospels. So who is the dove? Well, it's not the Father who speaks. It's not the son who is baptized and has flesh. Jesus didn't become a dove and land on himself. Who is this dove? Seems to be the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus is standing in the the water. This is not a party trick. He's not like the best ventriloquist ever. Hey, watch this. I can open the clouds and make my voice sound like it's coming from up there. Another voice comes and says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The Father speaking and sending the Spirit upon the Son who has taken on flesh. And you watch this interaction and you begin to say to yourself, something more is going on here. And without understanding that there is a perfect unity 
of relationship and purpose between Father, Spirit, and Son, everything starts to break apart. This is just one of the instances where this takes place. We cannot function as a church and make disciples without understanding the Trinity. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus lives his whole life. Many times, what does Jesus do? He goes off to pray to himself. Well, not really, right? But I thought you said Jesus was God and God is one. Yeah, but he prays to the Father all throughout his ministry. And who sustains him in the desert? The Spirit of God. In the Spirit, Jesus prayed. And at the end of his ministry, in Matthew 28, he says this. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, couldn't he have just said, baptizing them in the name of God? He did. The name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he puts them on equal footing. He does not say, baptize them in the name of the Father. And then, like, give an honorable mention to the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, we did a lot, okay? Like, I'm dying here. He doesn't say that. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Equal footing, equal standing. And that makes sense because in the rest of the New Testament, we're called to worship each individual member of the Trinity. How can the same Bible that says, don't worship any other gods, there's only one God, at the same time say, worship the Father and worship the Son and worship the Holy Spirit? It can say it because in one way God is one and in another way he is three. That's what we're finding. It just does not function. And at a certain point, I want you to, we're getting right to that point of tension point. We're right right to this point where we need to remind ourselves that at, at the end of the day, what scripture reveals about who God is, is for our good. And it is right. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of love. You do not want to get to the end of your life and have worshipped a simple, not complicated, easy to understand facsimile of God. Someone that you have created in your own image. This is who God has revealing himself to be. One other thing. How does the church function? Acts chapter 2. I just want to show you where this shows up all the time. If I said to you when we started today, we're going to teach on the Trinity today. Turn in your Bibles to the one outstanding passage of Trinity in the text. We could have gone to 19 different texts, right? I want to show you how it peaks out almost at every single spot. Acts chapter 2, we just taught through Acts. Peter stands up in verse 38. At Pentecost, he begins to preach. And this is what he says. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God the Father is calling you to himself. How? Through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repent in the name of Jesus so you can receive the Holy Spirit so that you could be united with your Father. What does this mean? This means that God is calling you to himself through the work of the three persons of the Godhead. And it's all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout. I want to make a comment on one historical fact. You know how I said one of the things that was uh, interesting at the beginning of this, if I said, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Another thing that makes people stumble often is the fact that how this works out is really not settled, at least the language that we would use as a, as a church, until about 325 AD. 
It took like 300 years for the church to figure out how does this function? How can we say this? How can we capture as simply as possible but clearly what the Bible says? And I know a lot of people are very hesitant. They say like these church councils, it's not in the Bible, we can't accept this. And I want you to just think for a minute this fact, that God has been revealing himself progressively throughout time. One of the reasons it took so long for the church to wrestle with this is, A, it's super confusing, it's stupefying, it's befuddling, and any other kind of words like that you could think of. But also, because the way that God revealed himself was progressive. It takes a while to figure this out. It took a couple hundred years to stop making Christological errors. Who was Jesus? Was he fully divine? Was he fully man? Did he really die or did he just appear to die? Okay, yeah, he really died, but did he, did he really raise from the dead? Or did he just appear to be raised from the dead? All these questions took a long time for people to figure out. And we should remember as well that God gave teachers, apostles, Prophets, in order to help direct doctrine. Doctrine is just the systematizing, the clarifying, the describing of what the Bible says. None of that means, none of it means that you turn off your brain, that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to you. As a church, we have the responsibility to scour Scripture, and I don't care how majestic or magisterial the council is that's called, if someone comes and says something contrary to the gospel, then we go straight up Apostle Paul on them, and we say, anathema, I wish that they would, that they would like, euthanize, not euthanize, that's a horrible way to say it. <laughs> that was a bad, that was a bad, anathema and euthanize sound too close together. I don't think there's a way to pull that one back. That one's just out there. You guys have the tapes on this? Rewind it, guy. Rewind it, tape guy. <laughs> so we say, don't, don't go that far. But you ought to say to yourself, no, this is wrong. Like, we have the right, we have the ability and the responsibility to be Berean-like and say, does the Bible actually teach this? But just because it took a little while should not make us upset. It should not make us say, like, I cannot embrace this doctrine. It's a gift to us that God has given the church. He's revealed over the course of time. And this is the way that we've settled to believe and understand what Scripture is saying to us. That God is both three and he is one. A couple of implications from this. I want it to be practical. I want you to see why it matters. Here's a couple of things. One, it means that our world and our nature and you yourself are more relational you have more of a need for relationship. You've been designed for a community in a way that you probably could never think or imagine. That at the beginning, the being that undergirds the entire universe, the being that you were made in his image, is triune, is relationship, is loving relationship. I think that goes a long way to describe the unbelievable connection that we need to have to people this built-in innate desire to be loved and approved of and cared for and connected is not minor. It's not a mistake. It's not an evolutionary byproduct for survival's sake. It is bound up in the very nature of who God is. This is astounding. It should make us think. It helps explain why nearly every problem you face is a relationship problem of some kind. You've had problems relating to self, relating to God, or relating to others. Relationships are not a minor part of life. They're bound up in the very nature of who God is. Another implication of the Trinity, the fact that of the Trinity, is it shows us that there can be absolute unity 
absolute unity in being and purpose, but yet distinct roles and personality. This is not a call to conformity within, within the Godhead. The Father functions in distinct roles. The Son obeys in distinct roles. The Spirit is sent and distinctly plays a role. It is possible for us to have relationships that are unified while playing different roles. It's part of the reason we believe that a husband and wife can be one flesh and yet a husband play a very different and unique role than a wife might in a marriage relationship. Never once do you look at the Trinity in the unity of God the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son and say, boy, the Father's really lording it over the Son today. It just doesn't happen. It shows us there can be diversity of personality and role even within unity. And here's the last reason that I think this is hugely important. It's the same reason anything that God reveals is important. It's because it's how he saves us. The Trinity is bound up in the gospel. You cannot say, I'm so glad I met Jesus, it's just that I don't want the Father. You cannot say, I see what Jesus did, I just don't want the Holy Spirit to apply his work to me. And I want to mention as well that a lot of the problems that we have in thinking about salvation, the gospel in particular, come from problems of Trinity. I remember one time, it's a very sort of personal story for me. I remember at one point listening to a guy teach on the Father heart of God. And he made the very obvious point, the fact that God reveals himself in some ways as Father. It's the dominant phrase in the Bible for what it is. It means that for many of us, we have difficulty understanding what does that look like and what does it mean. Because all of us have sort of different, varying degrees of difficult relationships with fathers. And as he began to describe the fact that God, from the beginning of time, set his affection on me, that he wanted me as his child, that he delights in me as a son like he delights in Jesus, I began to see the flaw in my gospel thinking because I didn't understand the Trinity. I think for the longest time I saw God as this angry, God the Father was an angry, wrathful, I'm going to get you and you will not get away from me kind of figure. And I was so grateful for Jesus who stepped it up on the martyr scale and said, this is just unacceptable. God the Father just keeps punishing all these people for sin. He's wrathful. He's rageful. And I started to see this picture sort of. It was like God is someone who I should stay distant from. The Father is someone to stay distant from. The Holy Spirit was just kind of a weird cousin on the side. I didn't think much of him. But it's this, this relationship. And I saw this idea of like Jesus somehow was the one who really saved me. He stepped in front of an angry dad. He was like holding God back and like whispering to me like, he's not looking. Go, get into heaven. Get in there. Run, he'll come. He's coming. I got just come, right? Like I saw Jesus as sort of like holding the father back. This is not the story of the Bible. God is triune and from the beginning of eternity past, God has set his affection on you as a father. He loves you as a daughter. He loves you as a son. He determined to redeem you as his people. So much so that he moved all of history and set his will in course and in due time sent his son. God so loved the world that he sent his son. The father from before the beginning of time Will I save? The Father has said, yes, I will. In response to the Father's loving initiative, right? The Son obeys. 
he obeys perfectly to the point even of death on a cross so that God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every single name before the foundation of the world. Jesus determined to obey so that you could be forgiven and saved. Just as the Father said, yes, I will save, the Son stands forever saying, it is done. It is finished. My blood is shed. My body broken so that you would be redeemed. And still, all of that would be for naught if it were not for the fact that God graciously sends his Holy Spirit Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, it's better that I go. If I go, the Father will send the Spirit who will take from me and give to you, who teaches you all things. It's the Holy Spirit who is poured out in our hearts that shows us the love of God. It's the Holy Spirit that prays for us when we cannot utter words. It's the Holy Spirit that is the guarantee, the deposit. of. It gives us an assurance that we are sons and daughters of God forever to redeem you. The Father said, I will redeem. The Son screams out, it is done. And right now, even in this moment, giving you assurance, the Holy Spirit is saying, it is yours. It is yours. You are mine. This is the work of a triune God. It is not in conflict with one another. It's not in conflict. There is unity of purpose to bring you home. To bring you home, God the Father is working. God the Son obeying. God the Spirit applying and sustaining. This ought to give us rest. This ought to make us rest. All of the fullness of God. Loving and working and bringing us home. Every little thing we do, the Trinity is a bigger deal than you thought. In about 7.3 seconds, I'm going to pray. How am I going to pray? to the Father, the name of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are hopeless without God as one and three. Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself. We, we struggle. We struggle to fully understand because you are not exhaustively knowable by us. But God, we're so grateful. Thank you for revealing what you have. You revealed all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. All that we